Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to the history of being black, the podcast where we talk about more than just black history. We talk about what it means to be black in America. I am your host, Eunice Elliott, and I will always be joined by some amazingly smarter than me person who has the academic background to talk to us and educate us and also enlighten us about what we can do and how we should be perceiving situations that we're living right now. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Reginald K. Ellis, Assistant Dean in the School of Graduate Studies and Research Florida A&M University. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ellis. Hey, happy to be back. Uh, you were our debut episode. And so, uh, yeah, by the time you're on episode two, that means you didn't do too horrible the first time. <laughs> All right. So that's the well, um, You spoke to us in that debut episode about Black people saving uh, the democracy, saving democracy in America. So anyone who's listening to this episode who did not hear our debut episode, you would really uh, do yourself a favor by going back and, and listening to that. But I want to follow up on that thought of how Black people in 2020 saved the democracy of America. Tell me more about that concept of what happened in the 2020 election. Well, what you see is, for example, particularly in the state of Georgia, uh, with the individual who ran for governor uh, in 2018, Stacey Abrams, obviously a Spelman graduate, uh, really put together a ground campaign where uh, she understood the demographics of Georgia. She understood really the demographic, demographics of Metro Atlanta. Um, mm -hmm. and turned out the vote in a way that no one, uh, anticipated. But what we see that, that ground campaign occurred prior to her run for governor. She, she really starts this groundwork well up into the early 2000s, uh, as a state representative. And so, what what we see is uh, black women like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Keisha Lance Bottoms, mayor of Atlanta in Georgia, and the list goes on. These individuals are are reaching out to a black uh, electorate that really hasn't really been galvanized and 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 fired up to vote in several elections, and and has given these individuals a reason of why to vote, not just to vote, but why you should vote. And so um, in, in, in that case, as we talked in the last episode, if you look at these, these black areas uh, that, that uh, saved democracy in the 21st century, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Detroit, Michigan, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, Atlanta, the Atlanta metro area of Georgia, even if you look at a place, even though the state of Florida went red, you look at a place like Jacksonville, uh, Duval County turns blue for the first time in, uh, since, I believe, Bill Clinton election as well. And so these areas of where these black people are, uh, are turning blue. And a lot of that is because you have black women on the ground, which has historically always been the issue. Black women have always led the charge uh, as it relates to human and civil rights. In America. So you mentioned Stacey Abrams specifically, and when she ran for governor and lost uh, uh, to Brian Kemp, it was one of those things where, first of all, before she lost that election, she received so much national attention, and there was so much uh, publicity put on that campaign nationally for this um, black woman running for governor of a state like Georgia. And what was interesting is that there were concerns about voter suppression prior to that election. And then at the time, Brian Kemp was the um, Secretary of State where he was trying 
to also suppress the vote in his position in a campaign he was running for office. And there was so much said about that. My question to you, as you mentioned, Black women being on the ground and galvanizing, what do you think the importance is of seeing, like just even visually seeing a Black woman running for that office? What does that do to our community to then say, hey, I'm going to get out and vote? Look, I have a a three-year-old daughter now, and on the Saturday when the election was marked over, I actually brought my daughter in in the room and I actually had her watch Kamala Harris because even though she might not get it, just the image of her seeing uh, an African-American woman as vice president of the United States. Now, let's go back to our history, right? For I can remember growing up in the 1980s and the 90s and my parents telling me and people around me in my community telling me, you can be whatever you want to be. You can even be president of the United States of America. In my mind, I'm like, yeah, right. I would never had an opportunity to be president of the United States. Uh, I have a colleague who has a a, a nine-year-old daughter, and he paints the picture for me very perfect. He says that, you know, my daughter has had two African-Americans, either president or vice president. That's her worldview. My worldview growing up was you had to be a white man to be president and vice president. So think about how different this generation coming up is. And so now they do have the idea that they could be president, vice president, uh, senator, United States senator. They do have the idea because of what who they see uh, of being college presidents, they uh, being uh, Fortune 500 company CEOs and owners, uh, just because of the optics of it. So, to your to your earlier question, what was it to see Stacey Abrams in Georgia running for governor? Although she did not win, I can guarantee you, in our lifetime, we will likely see uh, a woman governor of the state of Georgia, whether she's a woman. Uh, whether she's white or black, we will see that in our lifetime. You know, it's one of the things when you when you said um, people, young people are able to say, hey, I could be president based on what they've seen in their lifetime. Uh, you may know I also uh, perform as a stand-up comedian. And when Donald Trump was elected, I was trying to find the light in this moment. And the, the way I would talk about it on stage is when Barack Obama ran for president and won, a whole new demographic of the country said, wow, anybody can be president. And even though Hillary Clinton didn't win, her being the the top of a major ticket and coming that close, it was a whole new demographic saying, wow, anybody can be president. And when Donald Trump won the presidency, it was this thought of, wow, so just anybody can be president? Mm -hmm. So we don't want everybody to think they can be president because that's what this last experiment showed us is everybody (laughs) don't need to be president. (laughs) Okay, amen. I just want to make sure we don't tell everybody that they can be president because they can get into the wrong hands. So when you talk about your three-year-old daughter, okay, and um, Eva, right? And you don't know what Eva's going to be. And you have mentioned in a previous episode of the history of being black that you want to give her the privilege that our white counterparts have having just letting her figure it out, not having to use her inside voice, not having to color in the lines, not having to be seen <laughs> and not heard. You want Eva to just come out and whatever it looks like, you want to nurse 
nurture and support that. So when we talk about Black women in America, specific, specifically Black women in politics, can you speak to the challenges Black women have, even if it's just how our face might be during a vice, a vice presidential debate? Like, can you speak to what that is for us to just show up and be ourselves and how we still have to be so conscious of it? You know, it's uh, I, I will say it's sad that it still happens, but saying this as a Black man, right? So I, I, I want to be very careful to, and clear that I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know the struggle, but I say that politics of respectability is something that's real, right? Whether yeah. it's, it's dress, how you dress, how you do your hair, you know, where did you go to college, right? All of these things are, are, are things that black women still have to overcome. You have children. If you have too many children, are you are you really focused on your career or or not? You're, you'll be surprised the number of colleagues, even in the academy, um, who will say that who who have told me offline that they were criticized for having more than one child because they said you're not serious in in being a researcher because in order to be a researcher you really, you must dedicate your life uh, to it. But men, you know, we get a pass because. You know, it's as though we are not expected to raise our children, so we can go off and and uh, pursue our goals and our dreams and our aspirations. But you know, so those are the barriers that are still there um, uh, for Black women, right? And so, you know, Black women not only have to deal with race; they have to deal with the the concept of gender, sexism. Uh, that's that's still there, and that's why you know when you go back to the first. Democratic primary debate and the 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 shot that Senator then Senator now Vice President Harris hit uh, uh, Vice President Biden now President Biden with the the idea of race him him having racist ideas for the lack of a better uh, phrase she held him his feet to the fire quick early and it was a lasting moment. For him to come back and then select her as VP to to me suggests that he understood that she was strong enough uh, to to take the fight to the individuals who would come at her over the next four years, four to eight years. And I think that when we talked last, that's what I want my daughter to be. I want my daughter to be just as strong uh, as anyone else in the room. And so if you feel that you need to hold someone accountable for for something, speak up, hold that individual accountable, but you can still be your authentic self doing it um, and unapologetic about it, right? That was an amazing moment in those primaries when Kamala Harris did confront um, Biden and for him to select her uh, as his running mate. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It was a it was a it was the sound bite that they used from that whole moment. And for him to do that, it showed me a lot. One, that he pretty much knows he's a one term president. And it Mm -hmm. also shows that he said this is who should be president. We're not ready to elect her at the top of the ticket, but I can get her in office. That's how I took that. Uh, as a woman of a certain age, uh, myself included, when I look at Kamala Harris and when she came on this stage of running for president and then being selected as vice president, so many spe- people spoke about who she was married to, 
who she dated in the past, why she didn't have children. And we never see that with men running for office, black, white, or otherwise, let alone the office uh, in the land and all of his ex-wives and extramarital affairs aren't alleged um, and alleged. Uh, why do you think, uh, what is your perception of that, of why women, regardless of her education and professional background, will still be relegated to that personal? People were looking for a reason to disqualify her. You know, it, it goes back even to the Obama effect. I remember when Obama first ran for office, you had individuals in the black community that said he wasn't black enough. He, you know, he, he grew up in Hawaii and he his mother was white and he was raised by his white grandparents. He didn't totally understand uh, the black experience. And so and we saw the same thing that happened with uh, Senator now Vice President-elect Harris, right, where, you know, they came out quickly and said she's really not black, right? Her mother's an Indian. And, I didn't and, understand the conversation. Right. Yeah, right. And so I think that, again, even though she was she did everything that, quote unquote, she was supposed to do when it as it relates to the individuals who subscribe to or ascribe to this idea that in order to be a power broker as a female, that you really you almost can't have a career. Uh, you know, excuse me. You almost can't have a family. Well, she checked all those boxes. If that's the box that you believe she should check. And now that she uh, has gotten there, she's being criticized for not going the route in which the individuals wanted her to go, even though she has, if you look at her resume or if you look at her visa, she has clearly, uh, in, in some ways, surpassed even uh, Vice President Biden in the fact that she won a seat of attorney general and became a senator in a state like California. I think that, to your point, I'm not sure how long it will take for us to overcome those stereotypes, but I think with her being in office and with people like Stacey Abrams and these black mayors around the United States, eventually over time, some of those stereotypes will eventually fade away. The question is, what, what will they be replaced by? Right, exactly. When we're talking about black women in this uh, new administration, I was very touched and just overwhelmed with the thought of how many Black women, Joe Biden called on the day he selected Kamala Harris to tell them it wasn't going to be them. And I know that it had never been one black woman in that conversation, let alone three or four or five that were obviously qualified to have potentially have taken that role. And so when people were people of color or black people, I was seeing on social media that were, you know, not pro Kamala Harris. And I just thought, okay, can we just take a moment and say that a whole lot of black women got a phone call from Joe Biden today. And let's celebrate what that means to be at that table and not just one of us and not just two of us and not just three of us. Uh, that's that, that was very overwhelming for me. Tell me what was that for you as a black man, but also raising a young black woman and being married uh, to a black woman? Well, I was proud of the black community because I think that Joe Biden understood in the moment that he was not going to win this presidential presidential election without having a black woman on his ticket. I think the black community spoke very loud and very clear after the primary that uh, if you look at the most recent presidential election victories uh, that the Democratic Party have won in the 21st century, they had a black person at the top of the ticket. And the black community was saying, hey, if you want us to deliver for you, you're going to have to deliver for us. And so he had to select 
an African-American woman to be on a ticket. I think that was a demand from the black community. And so I was more proud of the black community for asking for that, uh, even more proud than I was of Joe Biden for selecting uh, Senator Harris. And so the follow up on that, now that they have been elected now, we and you've mentioned before accountability, right? So I've seen people already complaining and I'm like, let them get sworn in first. And then it's not just about complaining, but holding people accountable. Can you tell me why it's so important to um, for for us, the people that are putting people in office, not to just sit online and complain, but to write those letters, call up your senators, call up your congresspeople and the importance of the local vote beyond just the big national elections. Oh, yeah. you. I, I think what happened after Obama, people were so excited that we had a black uh black president that, you know, we didn't want to openly criticize him, right? We didn't want to hold him accountable because we understood, uh, you know, the institutional racism that he was going to deal with. I think we've learned as a black, as a community, uh, that we only get one chance at, at, or one bite at the apple, if you will. And so, yes, we have to fight like hell to make sure that we have representation. But once those individuals are in office, we have to also fight like hell that they remember why uh, we put them in office. And so, so after January 20th, we celebrate, but then we remind uh, Senator, excuse me, Vice President Harris and President Biden, we remind them why we voted for them and we don't stop reminding them. And we remind the uh, congressmen and women and we remind the senators and we remind our local, uh, local and state officials constantly because what we what we just saw in this presidential election and I don't even understand if we as a nation have digested that as of yet, but what we just saw is the impact of 13% of the population voting, right? If the people, and I'm not, I don't know off the top of my head what the percentage of that black vote was, but we are the vote that chooses the outcome of the election. For the most part, uh, the, the, the white vote was split. It's going to be always split, almost virtually 50-50. The question is, where's that 13% going to go? Is it going to go here or is it going to stay home? Right. Uh, of course, there's a, a, a few pill away to go to the other side. But if that 13 percent comes out, it changes the outcome of the election. And so what the, what we need to do is not only vote, but we need to stay engaged to ensure some of that pork, if you will, comes back home. And I think that's the biggest responsibility we do have is not just to vote, but to hold our elected officials accountable and not just complain and definitely not stay home. I know for a fact the 2020 election definitely empowered me and hopefully uh, black people to say, yeah, we do have the power to, to change this whole storyline. And so a lot of times I think because we have been so disenfranchised in so many different ways, but primarily in the way of voting, I think back when black free black men were first given the right to vote, I think in 1860 was then, but your grandfather had to own property. And people don't even realize the grandfather clause is racist in nature. We still use our terminology today. And so when you see in 2020 that enough of us in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, in these, in, uh, in these black cities, what was interesting is they did so much to try to suppress those votes. Those mail-in ballots came in. And then once they... Their plan didn't work. It was this idea of like with voter fraud. I mean, I think everybody knew it was ridiculous, but it was like, wait, we cheated so much. They had to have cheated to have beat what we were doing. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, how more obvious do you have to get that you're trying to keep people from voting? They vote and now you want to throw their votes out. One of the disheartening things 
to state it mildly is that all of the cases um, that were filed for quote unquote fraudulent uh, votes were targeting urban areas or the black community as though. And so when you start to think about the long history, I, I teach my students uh, when we when we discuss reconstruction, one of the things that black people wanted out of slavery was the right to vote. And one of the things that they always had to fight for uh, was the right to vote. So while they were fighting for the right to vote, certain segments of society were fighting against their right to vote. And so there's a long history of that. So again, when we start thinking about this idea of American democracy, you know, uh, America can't be a full democracy until all her people have the right to vote. And so and so when these when when everybody's able to vote, it truly is a more inclusive society. And so when you start to see people attack the idea of the vote and then to say that when they vote, their votes were fraudulent, it's still it's still problematic. It's extremely problematic and it's not by happen chance, <laughs> it's a uh, it's the system, right? Is what what they've been doing. So, uh, Dr. Ellis, I'd like to wrap up this episode. You mentioned your students, and obviously that's a younger demographic. Tell me, what did they feel from observing what happened and the power of the vote? Do you feel like young people are starting to process the importance of their vote and what they can do to change the country more so than maybe our generation or generations previously have felt? Well, this is what I hope. I think the students this past summer, because of what they experienced of uh, being on the ground with the Black Lives Matter protest and then turning that into the vote, it would be interesting to see if they keep that momentum moving forward. Um, I don't believe that this group, uh, this generation, I don't believe they will be silent in a way that, oh, we're happy now that we have um we have Trump out of office, if you will, or or that we have a Biden Harris administration. I think that they will continue to move to an environment where they're going to start to ask for policy changes. I think these individuals may become engaged in politics. I think these individuals may become engaged uh, as community activists, long term community activists. But another beautiful aspect of it is that they are starting to partner uh, with other groups, with young white people. And so, which is a very impactful thing. Um, first time in my lifetime I, that I've seen it on such a large scale, right? When you go look at, you go back and pull the video uh, from the summer in certain cities in Black Lives Matter protests, it, it, it was way more white students or white young people yeah. than it was African-American. And so I think that's also uh, an impactful um, uh, outcome. And so my expectation is that this group, this generation will be a generation um, that continues to move and push the ideas of American democracy even further than uh, the generation of the civil rights movement and Let's just hope I'm right. <laughs> I know. That's the key. Momentum, maintaining momentum, and still moving forward. So our action item, we always try to give our listeners something that they can potentially do. I'm going to offer one based on what you've already said. And I don't know if this is what you were thinking about offering. Um, but you know what? Now, beyond being registered to vote, beyond voting, why not pull up your uh, senators and representatives' voting records and, and, and make sure they are being accountable to what you voted them in to do? And all of their information is readily available on all of their websites. And I challenge people to check on that, and I challenge them to write 
the person that works for them to say, hey, this is a concern. This affects me and my family. What are you doing about it? Because I think most people just complain and they don't call them on it. And if I may, I will add to that and say attend a local school board meeting, attend a county and city commission meeting. You will be surprised at uh, at what goes on in those meetings and you will be surprised who gets the resources because you're not showing up. Love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellis, for joining us for another episode of The History of Being Black. Thank you for everyone listening. Hopefully you have been inspired and uh, not just inspired, but you are now engaged and you'll do what you can to be the change. Once you do something, we'd love to hear from you. You can always reach out to us on social media, but also use the hashtag be the change. And uh, Dr. Ellis, we're trying to do 21 things in 21 to affect that change. So also use the hashtag 21 in 21. We're going to always have our guests offer us some ideas. We'll offer some ideas, but we love to hear your ideas when you're listening to us of what we can do to be the change. So again, Dr. Ellis, thank you for your time. And we'll talk to you guys next time on the next episode of The History of Being Black. Take care. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Lauren Turner. Edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production.